0: A persistent question for those who lead in disaster preparedness and response is what to do with animals, pets, zoos, shelters, each presents distinct challenges in terms of both animal and human welfare. Strategic, operational, and ethical issues are complex. To help us sort through this and understand how leaders can think through these challenges is Kelly Donovan of Humane Society International and Humane Society of the U.S., Kelly is Director of Animal Disaster Response at the Humane Society of the United States and the Humane Society International. That's a big job. She's been involved in many incidents ranging from wildfires and floods to volatile geopolitical situations. She holds a BS in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from the University of Arizona and an MS in Conservation Medicine from Tufts Cummings Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. Kelly's an alumna of both the NPLI online and residential crisis leadership programs. Now I've had the pleasure of talking through many events with Kelly and I've learned a lot and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot too in this episode. Kelly donathan welcome to Leader Readycast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here.
0: Oh good. It's it's really great to have you. I'm very excited to have this conversation. So let's, let's just start with the basics. Tell us about your role and, and how you got there.
1: Sure. My role um at the Family Family of Organizations with Humane Society is to oversee and um, really sort of direct our strategy in disaster response. But we actually, we do, we're much more involved in other aspects of disaster management. So um, both domestically here in the US and across the globe, um, we work with a variety of different stakeholders to better prepare individuals, communities, organizations for potential disasters, as well as working with governments to include animals in their national or local disaster plans. We've done drills um, to help people work out those plans with their animals, as well as obviously the response side of things. Um, when disasters do strike and they outweigh the local capacity, we're often brought in to to help with um, any animal needs. Um, I got here, I guess, you know, it's it's a little bit of a, a windy road. I mean, I knew I always wanted to work with animals. That's it's just been ingrained in me since I was born, I guess. I've got a lot of my background in wildlife conservation and wildlife rescue and rehabilitation. Um, I work a lot, have worked a lot with wildlife and captivity and in the international wildlife trade. And that sort of became sort of a lot of crisis situations dealing with large animals like tigers and lions and bears <laughs> um, to... Uh, you know, in situations that were, you know, really unfavorable for for everyone's safety and, and welfare. And so sort of that crisis response that I was doing also then led to me to be also deployed during disaster situations. And uh, ultimately, I continued to um, really get involved in, in the disaster work. And here I am. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's. <laughs> thank you for that background, and, and for our audience, you know, it's it's funny when people mention lion, tigers, and bears. They're usually being, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a reference to, uh, a literary work. And mm. in Kelly's case, it's, it's reality, right? It's lions, <laughs> lions, tigers, bears, snakes, gerbils. You know, right. all the, the the full range of, of our of our non-human friends, and uh, many great stories there. So, you know, given all that experience, what are two or three misconceptions that people have about uh, animals and disasters? How do we overcome those?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, when I was thinking about this, I think one of the first one that comes to mind is that rescuing or saving animals is somehow mutually exclusive of then helping people. And so I think when people see, you know, especially in a disaster that's affecting both humans and animals, the concern that any resources that are put towards animals are somehow then being pulled away and there's a loss on the human side. And truly that's, that really is a misconception because they, you know, helping animals often is directly helping the people as well. Many people don't want to leave or evacuate without their animals. Um, The trauma that, you know, people go through in a disaster on its own, but then if they are forced to be separated or can't, Take care of their animals at the same time exasperates their their um, overall trauma, the situation, and uh, and because there are organizations like ours who are specialized and focused on the animal side of things, we're not taking away from any sort of resources that are there for humans. You know, we do work hand in hand, and and the two don't need to be mutually exclusive. So that was one. Um, I think another one is that you know, in some parts of the world, when you see disasters happen, um, there's sort of this thought that, especially outside sort of the, either the global north or the west, that people don't care as much about their animals or their, you know, their left. And I think, you know, especially in, in this country, we, you know, we say don't leave your animals behind, but in reality, the uh, infrastructure isn't there yet in many places around the world and people risk their lives every day all over the world for their animals. And so I think that's another important thing to remember is just because it doesn't look the same to, to what we know or what we're used to or what we know we have access to doesn't mean that you know people aren't truly invested in the being of their animals during disasters.
0: Uh, so those are both really important points because I think that we see that uh, and we've, you know, we've seen this, that people think, oh my God, if I pick up the animals, I'm, I, it's something I can't do for the humans, but it's very much inter, interdependent. Again, that people will risk their lives, do risk their lives every day for their animals. So thank you for clearing up both of those. Now, so that's the misconceptions. When it goes right, what does it look like? When you guys are working hand in hand with other agencies, when, when things are going as they should, um, what, what does good look like? Both in preparedness and response.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, in preparedness, I think it it's going well when people are talking to each other, when um, plans are being put in place, and they're not being done in silos. You know, if a, if an animal shelter creates a plan, then it doesn't stop with them. They, you know, the the best way, especially in the preparedness side, is to then make sure that their plan fits with the local emergency management's plan, that they, that they're aware of that plan, that their local fire department or police department or other emergency managers know what their plan looks like and they've walked it through together and, you know, looked for any downfalls. And so everyone knows what that looks like. They know their role to play. I think that we're in, in response to, I mean, it really comes down to communication and, and everybody stepping outside their their own realm to make sure that uh, that all the actions are uh, complementary and working well together. There's always, you know, potential concerns when animals are involved, and and many of them are very legitimate. And so it's working through those issues uh, ahead of time. Especially in response, I still try to tell people, you know, it's a disaster, right? So like when they say, well, what, what, how should it all be happening? Well, it's it's going to happen the best that you can with whatever plans you have in place, but it's not, it's not as nothing's going to go perfect in a response because it's a disaster. It's meant to be messy and chaotic. Um, So it's really trying to look beyond, you know, our own potential issues. I, you know, I, I really regret when I see groups going in or people going in to help animals and really do do it on sort of on their own and and aren't working within the larger coordinated response, the more that um, we really, strive to be very much coordinated and integrated into that response so that whatever we're doing is going to be working alongside the the broader efforts that are being made to to help people because if we do things on our own there's lots of ways that that can go wrong so i think whatever it looks good it's because everyone's working together
0: yeah we talk a lot about connectivity at the MPLI and we we draw that situation connectivity map and we say that You know, every crisis is actually many crises and and Mm. the the one sort of sub-crisis you're not paying attention to is the one that will come bite you in in the rear end every time. And I think that's, you know, what you're bringing up is so important to that because if people, if, you know, emergency managers and and others are not thinking about the animal aspect of things, uh, as you say, some groups will come in and, and start working on their own, which can present its own challenges and have its own consequences or, the public will expectations won't be met, or the media will will get a hold of a story, and all of a sudden you'll be on the defensive of why had why didn't you think about this ahead of time right and um so again i think I encourage our listeners to to realize this is this is part of reality now you know i i I like to talk about the Starbucks effect on emergency management, which is that you know once once upon a time you could go into a, a coffee shop and your choices were do you want cream or not do you want sugar or not right there was it was pretty basic right and now when you walk into a Starbucks or any other uh, sort of modern coffee boutique someone did the calculation there's more than a thousand ways to order a cup of coffee between oh my gosh sizes and squirts and foam and all that stuff um, and but that's the expectation people have now so I think people expect you to have thought of this, even if they haven't thought of it very well themselves, and we'll talk about that in a moment of what people can do individually and as households, uh, but they expect emergency managers to have thought of these contingencies. And that's, uh, you know, and it's great to someone like yourself and and your organization out there to work with, to be able to get the answers and think through, uh, think through the challenges ahead of time. So it doesn't become too chaotic in the midst of the disaster.
1: Right. Yeah. And and including with that is, is social media plays such, especially with I mean, it does with everything, but for animals and disasters, we've just seen the power of social media and how it can be such an asset, but also a huge obstacle when trying to to coordinate animal rescue or reunification efforts um, for animals lost or separated from their people. So we really need to always be anticipating that and and finding the best way to harness that power for, for the best. Outcomes versus where it can kind of, but you know, as you were saying, people expect a lot, and sometimes expectations are not always realistic. But you know, we need to be able to help explain why that is, and working with media is really important in that.
0: No, absolutely, absolutely. Now, you know, we've talked both about humans and animals. You mentioned that you know that these aren't mutually exclusive. That that animal-human connection goes back, you know, thousands of years, back to you know the first early gatherings of people when they welcomed certain animals in with them for protection reasons for hunting reasons for companionship all sorts of things and that relationship gets much deeper than many people realize particularly if you're not an animal uh, companion animal owner yourself what are some of the human human wellness issues affected by how animals are handed handled during disasters
1: yeah i mean it can go from you know just at like um, best case scenario just added stress if they're able to even take their animals or but if there's not plans in place you know, we've seen that in areas where people can't find a shelter that they can go to. They've evacuated with their pet, but they can't find a place to stay with them. And that obviously adds quite a bit of stress. But that's sort of the best case. I mean, worst case scenario, animals aren't considered at all, haven't been allowed to leave or people have been forced to separate from their animals. And um, and that's, you know, that can lead to pretty serious um, uh, trauma for for people, especially if they are ever able to be reunited. And then the the kind of extreme end of that is people risking their lives, either going back into dangerous areas to try to um rescue their animals on their own, or, or again, people not leaving dangerous areas and staying behind with their animals um because they couldn't take them with them because they either didn't have a plan in place or they didn't um they didn't have fair, you know, enough warning. I mean that's even the preparedness. I mean, we really need to be, make sure that we're always reaching the most vulnerable people, which then will often have the most vulnerable animals. And um, and so a lot of times they're often missed um, and, uh, you know, they there's a lot of um, suffering and, and even, you know, pretty tra- catastrophic uh, consequences of those situations. So, um, you know, we've seen quite a lot, you know, since Katrina in this country, I think, you know, it's become much more um, it's improving each year. Uh, I think the study showed about 40% of people in Katrina didn't evacuate because of their pets. Um, it was a huge, you know, really disaster in and of itself that animals, um, you know, the lack of consideration or allowing them to be part of the rescue and um, recovery efforts, you know, didn't really put a lot of people in jeopardy. Um, but, you know, I think there's, there's just a whole spectrum. It's not even just that bond. And I mean, I think, you know, more communities all around the world, we're seeing people are growing, you know, animals that their pets are treated more like family or, you know, seen though as, as their family. And, and we see this all over the place, but there's also obviously livelihoods to consider. Um, And, and it's not just a, a monetary situation. I mean, people that uh, raise animals um, for their livelihood or use animals in their livelihoods. There's a huge um, connection there with with them and those those specific animals. It's not quite so transactional as I think some people think it is, and it can even really get to their identity. I mean, we saw um, far- sheep farmers in on Kangaroo Island uh, and during the wildfires who had to be put on suicide watch because after have to you know dispatch hundreds of their sheep who had been. Burn so badly that they couldn't survive not only was that traumatic in and of itself but there's a that goes back generations and generations of these families that that's that's who they are that's what they do is is that um is work in that industry so there's this identity that a lot of people have tied to um if they work with animals and so that can be you know an incredible uh, consequence of animals not having not either being able to be protected or considered during prior to a disaster.
0: That's such a sad story, but it, it's it really points out the complexities of this these situations. And you're right, the things that we might not think of, if you're if you haven't been in the in the sheep farming business for generations, you wouldn't you can't even begin to conceive of what the what the sheep means to the mm-hmm. to the individuals there. It's a, a very touching story. Now, let me ask you the flip side of that question: Can some animals actually be assets during disasters? Is there is there a, sort of an upside we should be thinking about as well?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, I think when people are able to stay united with their pets, there's, um, you know, like I said, there might be some added stress of having to figure out. There's a little bit of stress, maybe dealing with the animal during that. But we've seen, especially in the Ukraine crisis, with the refugees coming across with their animals, we see people get so much comfort and reassurance just having their animals with them. I and mean, they may be in a train station in Krakow, Poland, and trying to figure out where to go next, but just having their dog there in their arms or knowing their cat is in the crate right next to them, being able to pet animals. I mean, in best of times, having, we've, you know, there's been plenty of studies to show the, the health and wealth, wellness benefits of having animals and, and the, you know, effects it can have on our ability to Maintain stress um, just through, you know, stroking an animal's fur, or you know, just having their their warmth near you, and especially for children, uh, I think it was incredible. It kept some a level of normalcy for for the kids that were going through such a horrific uprooting and and so much so much that there was just the unknown in, in, in this you know situation that continues to go on. Um, having their pets with them allowed them to kind of you know have something that that means home to them that means family and um and also can offer a distraction you know we we were in many refugee camps where the dogs were being goofy and playing and people were laughing and the kids were throwing the ball and like little those little moments of happiness are so incredible for the resilience of everybody going through that um situation we've also seen animals professionally used um, in disasters. There are groups that um, are trained uh, first aid, um, psychological first aid responders, and they are able to use um, trained dogs to help really help people that might not be ready to talk about what they're going through yet or what they just went through. Um, situations like school shootings or um, earthquakes, uh, you know, where there's people are displaced and they're injured or they're Um, traumatized, being able to have mental health workers um, there to help them process and and understand what their, you know, their next needs are, are often really aided by having dogs who people are able, like if they're not ready to talk yet, they might be able to at least be near a dog helps them open up. And so um, I think that's an incredible power that animals have and, and can provide people during times of trauma.
0: Yeah, I I have no scientific research to back this up but I always say that having a dog in in the room increases the overall emotional intelligence by 50% right. no matter yeah. where you are. Right. Um because again, yeah, it gives it gives everyone some some uh, you know someone to relate to. Right. Uh it, it's uh and particularly a, tra- a trained dog the comfort dogs are more and more co- uh, common in police departments mm-hmm. and elsewhere. Harvard's got a couple of them in our libraries for uh ex- stressful exam times.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and so we're really seeing many of the benefits there. Now, when, when you think about much of what you've talked about, it particularly in terms of response of the, the trauma of separating uh, people from their animals or separating them from, from their historical livelihoods, there's obviously some, some ethical issues there. I know when I talk to uh, first responders and emergency managers, they often go first to the operational piece of, okay, where are we going to put them? How are we going to feed them? Well, but there actually are some real ethical issues there. How, how do you think through those issues of... of Again, which animals to save? How to do it? How to work through uh, these complex situations? What's what's your true north, or how do you think about this?
1: Well, this is a really a really tough question because you know I think animals in disaster preparedness and disaster response is still a developing field. So on the operations side, we're we're sort of still making strides in that constantly, and then that kind of can play into a little bit of what those ethical decisions are, but. From our perspective, I mean, we do still understand and, you know, human lives come first. We always make sure that any of our efforts would never be, usually human rescue is always going to be the kind of those first steps and in the initial aftermath of a, of a disaster. And I think operationally and ethically, the more that we can combine um, those efforts and include animals in that where possible, um, which we are seeing more and more where we've realize that we don't have quite as many animal rescue needs following some disasters in the U.S. because when people are being rescued their animals are being taken with them by the human rescuers which is fantastic so I think the more that that is possible um, that really gets at both the operational and the ethics side because it it really it's putting all life as as that you know as though it matters and and trying to to take care as much of all life as possible. Obviously there can be issues where resources are limited. And um, we, you know, there's areas can be, especially outside this country, we've we've responded to places that are very remote. Um, there are human communities that maybe haven't been, haven't received humanitarian aid yet. We don't, we don't think it's ethical to go in to those communities and start handing out cow feed or uh, dog food where people haven't gotten their food yet. So we make sure to work closely with the humanitarian side and, and hope, you know, that we're, we're always coming in, especially if we were, are working somewhat separately, that it is, you know, coming after humanitarian aid has been provided because we, you know, we can obviously see the concerns and the issues with that. Um, so it's every situation is, you know, we're, we're constantly developing, um you know, more and more guiding principles of our work and the ethics can be really hard when we talk about what to say, you know, who to save, especially if you don't have, um, you know, resources to do enough for, for everyone. And, um, that's, that's always going to be a challenge.
0: Yeah. There's obviously no easy answer there. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, that's okay. Uh, Yeah. And I knew it was going to be
1: a tough one to answer.
0: Yeah, no. And I, I, um, I encourage our listeners to just just have more of these conversations around the ethical implications—not just of animals, but of all the aspects of preparedness and response. Because whenever you make decisions about allocating resources or prioritizing one effort over another, um, there are ethical dimensions to that, and you want to have thought those through ahead of time and come to whatever decision you come to, but be able to explain it to people, to explain it to yourself, uh, because you know, again, something like Kelly just mentioned about sequencing. Humanitarian aid and and, and animal aid, um, that can be a way of address, of addressing that, and that should be something that's thought through ahead of time, not uh, a decision made in in the moment. So um, yeah, I'm always one to encourages uh, people to sit down and and wrestle with these because they are uh, they're thorny and they also bring up some you know always bring up some interesting issues. Uh, and if you get th- when you the conversation itself can actually help create team cohesion because you're getting into some of the thornier, more difficult sides of of this work. So we've talked about some of the the challenges, some of the issues, we've talked about what success looks like when it all goes right. If I were to hand you a magic wand to wave, what are the things you'd like every preparedness and response agency to do to be ready to handle the animal issues they're likely to encounter?
1: Yeah, I think think the first step is for them to know who their potential partners are, who the um, animal organizations or Shelters in their area, those resources, um, and really talk to them and talk through what are likely to be the impacts of disasters on animals in their, in their community, and what's who can they uh, work with to develop those plans. I think you know the expectation isn't that everybody is going to be able to shoulder all these ex- you know extra needs during a disaster and and knowing exactly what to do with animals, but taking the time, you know, before disaster happens to know what those resources are either in their community or, you know, beyond so that they're prepared at the very least to call on somebody for help. I think that's really important. I know we've, we've, you know, talked to local police departments or uh, local emergency managers, you know, across, especially in areas that, you know, that, that don't get affected that often by disaster. So when the flooding happened in Eastern Kentucky, um, this summer they're not the most experienced emergency response agencies in those areas they have to you know luckily haven't had to do it too much and so they don't even know who to ask for help so i think if i could if i had that magic wand it would be for people to at least know that there are resources out there for people to help them even if they don't have everything in place or all the plans prepared for dealing with animals um so knowing that network i think would be one of the first first things that I would wish for.
0: That's great. And how about every household that includes animals? I would think it's easier if people who expect to be taken have their pets taken with them if they have to evacuate, for example, have prepared for that uh, eventuality. what what can What can individuals in their households do to be better ready for this for these situations?
1: Yeah, so there are definitely kits. Um, that people can put together. We have information on our website about what to go into that kit, including, you know, food and medications and veterinary records. Um, The two things that are always going to be the most important is having your pets up to date on vaccines and proof of that, because oftentimes to get into a shelter or if you're having to cross state lines or doing different things or, you know, if you're outside the country, Uh, if you don't, you know, that can be a obstacle if you don't have them either up to date or, um, proof of that. And the other thing would be microchipping. Um, you know, it is possible that you can do everything in your power in the, you know, to prepare and have a kit and everything. But what if the tornado strikes when you're at work and your pets are at home, you know, and you, you get separated, having your animals microchipped and registered is the easiest way to get animals reunited with, with their, uh, owners and it's I can't stress enough how important that is to have some ability to keep your animals um, identified and connected to your information.
0: That's great advice. and I think that's a great uh, great communications campaign for all of you out there, the agencies out there wanting to engage with communities around this issue via social media or or otherwise. you have, uh, Great guidance here and resources. What's the URL for your website where they can find that information, Kelly?
1: Um, it's for the Humane Society of the U.S., which has the information there will be very applicable everywhere. It's um, www.humanesociety.org.
0: Great, thank you. Now, I can't leave you without ask you for to tell us a, a story or two from the field, with that, back to that lions, tigers, and bears, oh my territory. Uh, What's the most unusual situation you've encountered in your work?
1: Oh man, this is a, <laughs> this is a tough one because I think sometimes I'm also a little bit immune now to what is unusual. You know, there are a couple of things can't come to mind. You know, when I was I responded to um, Mozambique after Cyclone Idai in 2019. Um, it was a horrible, horrible cyclone that um, devastated a large area and from Beira, the city and and to the rural areas around and um we were trying to reach some of these more rural communities that we knew had you know a lot of cattle and pigs and you know animals as part of their their um livelihoods and and the still the roads were washed out so we were able to basically hitchhike on a world food program helicopter that was dropping aid to the communities and so we were able to get out there, but there's no, there was no communication, and you know, those of us in the animal field were not quite as sophisticated yet to have things like satellite phones. So we <laughs> were out there, um, and it was incredible. The community was so, so devastated, but so amazing, and and were immediately grateful and wanted, you know, for us to help vaccinate and try to protect what surviving livestock they had left, and. Uh, But then we kind of had to wait to see if the helicopter came back in the evening. So I was (laughs) kind of there by myself one day on this soccer field, and it was actually the National Women's Day in Mozambique. There was still no power. I mean, you know, there were still hundreds of people missing from the community, but they started playing some music on a generator, and the sun was going down, and we're just in this big soccer field and waiting to see if the helicopter shows up. And they, uh, they just couldn't have been more incredible. So there's not so much animals is part of that story, but it was just one of those moments where you're like, how did I get here? And, (laughs) um, and yeah, just unusual, but also amazing, you know, in so many ways.
0: That's a great story. And I know you've gotten to go to some really interesting places under, Mm -hmm. under usual circumstances, which is true of many people in in the, the, the broader emergency management business. You never know where the bad thing is going to happen and where you have to go. Right. But you know, given all the turmoil in the world, given all the extreme weather we're seeing, the political unrest, I want to ask you the, my final question, which is what I ask all of my guests. What gives you hope?
1: i It's so easy to get overwhelmed. Um I know, you know, I do definitely at times. I mean, sometimes you just feel like, are we ever going to be able to keep pace with with the way, you know so many crises and disasters are happening. But what gives me hope is that, you know, every time we're able to reunite somebody with their, with their animal, or, you know, I I was down in hurricane in Florida during hurricane Ian and having, you know, being able to just get about dog food or vaccines, you know, that gave people the ability to take care of their animals. And I think when we empower people to care for their family, whether that's human (laughs) or non-human, um, Seeing that that that's consistent everywhere I go is that that gratitude to be able to care for the beings that they love. And I think the fact that we have that, and we have it really in in volumes all over the world, that that gives me hope that, regardless of what continues to come our way, that we'll keep trying to work together and understand that sort of common desire to to do good whenever possible. You know, we still may fail here and there or, you know, have hard days, but I don't think that's going to ever go away.
0: Well, that's such a great sentiment. And thank you. We really appreciate the work that you and your colleagues do. Uh, And I hope that listeners, you can see how, what actually what a leadership challenge this is of having to bring people together to create unity of mission, to, to, uh, to raise a, a stakeholder group that doesn't have its own voice uh, into the conversation and to be able to work with across organizational boundaries, to, uh, to be able to coordinate with the various other players who are out in the field. So it's a, I think it's a really interesting field. And, and uh, Kelly, as you mentioned, it's still a young and evolving one. So I look very oh. much forward to how this develops over the years to come. So my guest in this episode has been Kelly Donathan. She's the director of, this, of Animal Disaster Response for the Humane Society, both in the U.S. and internationally. And you can learn more about uh, the Humane Society and the work they do every day and in situations where it matters most at wwhsi.org for the international side and www.humanesociety.org for the U.S. Kelly, thank you so much for taking time with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: And listeners, always be ready to lead when it matters most. Until next time, be well. This has been another episode of Leader Readycast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader Readycast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.